welcome and thank you, George, for the first time. George leading, so thank you for that. Woohoo! I don't get applause anymore. I don't even I got it the first Sunday, so there you go. <laughs> I wasn't asking, but thank you. <laughs> it's good to be here, and I'm glad that you're here, and I'm glad that you're joining us. Um, as Casey mentioned, we are in a study of Matthew this year. And uh, it's been always an interesting thing. As you may know, uh, I am an advocate, and I will re-challenge you, in a sense, to, at this some point soon, read Matthew through in one sitting, uh, because it is worthwhile to do. You gain certain things that you don't see otherwise, and obviously by time and uh, just how we do things, we don't have time to sit here. Maybe we should do that. Uh, maybe just sit here and read scripture all the way through a book. Um, I, I would have a fun time, but um, yeah, no applause for that, I see. <laughs> I, I've also threatened I could pre... Now you're just pandering, Josh. <laughs> there is There are many things, though, about Matthew that we as Americans don't notice, um, not just by virtue of how we read and how we study, but just because there are certain things that Matthew does which are culturally not how we look at stories, culturally not how we write, culturally not how we approach things. And indeed, there are stories like today's text, which I admit I is maybe a bit of an odd section. Oftentimes, I've heard sermons and I've heard lessons that tend to, uh, actually, indeed, one of my favorite um, other preachers that I tend to listen to and try to gain wisdom from, I couldn't find a sermon on this particular section, which I thought was interesting, because it has to do with not very fun things. But we have to realize a couple things about Scripture. We have to realize that, obviously, we may not think of it this way, but Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they don't record every single little bit of Jesus' life. If they did, we would have the massive text that we would never read, so they pick and choose. What this tells us is that everything that's in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, everything that's in any one of these books is there on purpose. We know that because obviously the Holy Spirit inspired it, but we know that more so because Matthew has a particular point which he's trying to get across. He's trying to tell us a particular thing about Jesus. And so therefore, when we come to a thing, when we come to a pericope, to use a good word, when we come to a passage which is not very fun or uncomfortable or we don't know what to do with, we have to realize that it wasn't written to us. It was written for us, but not to us. Today's text, to many people, may be a bit of a blind corner about we just had the birth narrative of Jesus, this happy thing, and all of a sudden we're in this horribleness. Why include some of these details? Why include some of the things that Matthew does? That's the question we have to ask first. And for some of us, what Matthew is actually doing here may seem like one of these comics which ends a bit unexpectedly. I found this one I really enjoy. We have a standoff of just crossing the street. I enjoy it at least. You don't have to, but I'm going to say to enjoy some more. No, I'm just kidding. This piece of text before us today is actually surprisingly loaded and complex. As much as it is horrible and not very fun. In fact, one of the 
commentators I read called this particular story the dark side of Christmas, which I thought was actually very appropriate because this is, as, as indeed Bill said, just after the birth narrative. And I want to reread um, part of the text. And there's quite a bit going on here. And it was actually a little bit of a struggle to figure out how to approach this text today. Uh, so I'm just going to go through it exegetically, talk about what's going on, and then come back around to say what it means. When they had gone, Matthew 2, starting in verse 13, when they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Just off ham, this is a callback to what Joseph means. Joseph means actually interpreter of dreams. So it's a very interesting thing that Joseph is called who he is because he is warned and uh, guided by God through dreams. Good little historical point, just like in Genesis. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so it was fulfilled that the Lord had said to the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said to the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Historically, this section of scripture is called the Massacre of the Innocents when Herod does this horrible deed. Why include this story, not just because of that it was historical, but Matthew is the only one who does. Why does Matthew include this story when the others don't? Why is this story talked about in this? What is with the scripture references, the Old Testament allusions? Well, let's find out. There's a story actually too I want you to, uh, there's a part of this story I want you to see which plays into this, and that is, is that um, King Herod is called King Herod only a couple times. And then he is metaphorically dethroned whenever the Magi go and worship Christ. Good textual detail to notice, and that plays into this. One of the first things to notice here is that we have a couple of different scripture references. Now, they're not always scripture references. Matthew has a ton of Old Testament allusions, if not references. Allusion is in get a reference, an, an indirect reference to a story. These two are direct references, more or less, but Matthew does this all over the place, and he has two very interesting references. This reference right here is actually Hosea 11.1, 1, in which, I can't remember if I have the, nope, I don't have it up there. <laughs> I thought I had a slide for it. I can, I can fuzzle myself, but that's okay. In Hosea 11.1, 1, he is remembering the Exodus story. And basically talking about the fact that I did confuse on myself because now I've got to find Hosea on the fly. And as you may know, Hosea and the oldest prophets are not very easy to find sometimes. There they are. <laughs> Hosea 11.1, in the context, it says, When Israel was a child, I loved him. Out of Egypt I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk, who took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness and bands of love. And I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their laws. I bent down to them and fed them. They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be the king, because they have refused to return to me. 
The swords are raging against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, and devour them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me, though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. Now, what is Hosea referring to in the context? Well, he's actually referring to several things. He's referring, first and foremost, a callback to Israel calling them out of Egypt. He's invoking the image of Moses. And you have to realize that as a Jew, you don't just read things and go, oh, this is literally what it means. As a Jew or a Hebrew, you would read certain things, and the whole story would come to mind. There is no such thing in Jewish study as proof texting. There shouldn't be in our culture, but that's a whole other thing. When you have an allusion to something, you think automatically of the entire story, the entire pericope, the entire uh, context of what So when Matthew has us in you might think, what he's doing here is he's invoking the very image of two things, the very image of Moses within the very context of exile. And those who are familiar with Hosea go on to know that he's not just talking about the original exile, or the first exile in Egypt, but later on he is talking about the Assyrian and Israeli exile when Israel was destroyed in 722. But right away I want you to see that he's invoking the image of Moses. The second thing we have is this one, the reference to who Herod is. Because that's actually important. We see that Herod plays a major role in Matthew 1 and 2. Now, who was Herod? Herod the Great was a king. He was a half-breed, as a matter of fact. He wasn't a true uh, uh, king of true lineage. But he was, indeed, politically speaking and civically speaking, Herod the Great. He built Caesarea. He built buildings. He rebuilt the temple. He was politically and civically great indeed. But he was also a tyrant. I want to read for you, and I don't have the notes memorized, I want to read for you a historian's view of who Herod was. He says, Josephus gives us a hideous tale of what was going on in the family. Attempted poisonings, one brother against another. It so rattled Herod that he actually put to death three of his own sons in of treason. He put to death his favorite wife out of ten of them. She was a Hasmonean Maccabean princess, and he put her to death, and he killed his mother-in-law. I say, one of his many mother-in-laws. He invited the high priest down to Jericho for a swim. They played a very rough water polo, quote-unquote, and they, he drowned him. He killed several uncles and a couple of cousins. Later on, when he is ill, he goes to his inter-palace, this is the, the scholar, and he invites his sister Solomon and says, I want you to arrest all the Jewish leaders in the land and imprison them in the hippodrome just below the palace. And so she does this, and she says, Brother, why am I doing this? And Herod says, Well, I know that when I die, the Jews are going to rejoice, so I want to give them something to cry about. And he executes all the leaders that he had gathered. So there, there will be thousands of households weeping at the time Herod the Great dies. He's a good guy. I say that to exacerbate one last week's point of this is a man that is absolutely, holistically, and completely wrapped up in the world's definition of power. The only way to keep power is to keep it by force. The only way to keep power is to not be a leader but a tyrant, to make sure that no one opposes you, even so far as the fact that he knows that he is unpopular, and so he gives his own culture something to cry about upon his death. 
So I say that background to say, is it within the realm of possibility that Herod would go so far as to say there is a king who was born, an ethnic king, a true king, therefore I must kill him by any means necessary, therefore he was born about this time in this region, kill all the baby boys. Is it possible he would do this? Oh yeah. Without a second thought. Probably that much of a first thought just makes sense. When Herod the king heard this in verse 3, he was troubled. <laughs> Secretly, some of the wise men, they disobey. In a dream, they rise and flee. In the verse 16, Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and all that region who were two years old or under. Historically speaking, with the population of the time, with the uh, demographics and such, most likely there were 15 to 20 boys that were killed. Doesn't make it any less horrible. And doesn't make it any less insidious that a man would devalue life and value his own importance to the fact of killing the innocent. But out of this, Matthew says something interesting. He says, Then it was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. And this is the quote down here. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. This is from Jeremiah 31. Now the interesting thing about this quote is that Jeremiah 30 through 33 are actually not lament quotes. They're actually not lamenting. Actually, Jeremiah 30 through 33 are writings of great joy and peace and comfort for God's people. We're going to look at just a few here to give the context. This is Jeremiah 31, 15. What's the context of Jeremiah 31? I want to read a little bit before and a little bit afterwards just to give you the context. This is what the Lord says. He says in Jeremiah 31, Sing for joy with Jacob. Sout for the foremost of the nations. Make your praises heard and say, Lord, save your people, the remnant of Israel. See, I will bring them from the land of the north and gather them from the ends of the earth. Among them will be the blind and the lame, expectant mothers and women in labor. A great throng will return. Then will come with weeping. Then I, they will come with weeping. They will pray as I bring them back. I will lead them beside streams of water on a level path where they will not stumble because I am Israel's father. Ephraim is my firstborn son. There's a lot there if you're familiar with Old Testament allusions. Hear the word of the Lord, you nations, proclaim it in the distant coastlands. He who scattered Israel will gather them, and he will watch over his flock like a shepherd. The Lord will deliver Jacob and redeem them from the hand of those stronger than they. They will come and shout for joy on the heights of Zion. They will rejoice in the bounty of the Lord, the grain, the new wine, and the olive oil, the young and the flocks and herds. They will be like a well-watered garden. They will sorrow no more. Then young women will dance and be glad, young men and old as well. I will turn their mourning into gladness. I will give them comfort and joy instead of sorrow. I will satisfy the priests with abundance, and my people will be filled with my bounty, declares the Lord. Later on in the chapter, he says this, something we're hopefully very familiar with. Days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel, with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant, 
though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law on their mind and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their wickedness and I will remember their sins no more. So what's interesting about this is right smack dab in the middle of 31, let alone this section, the section that Matthew quotes in response to this massacre, which is in the midst of great comfort and praise and joy of what God is doing. The question is, what is Matthew doing? There's a lot to throw at you. Let's look at the text. What is Matthew doing? I should read through Matthew 18, I'm sorry. Matthew 13 through 18, regardless. I want you to see a couple things. One, as we already talked about, he is invoking the image and the imagery of Moses and the Exodus with Hosea. He's also invoking the imagery of the Assyrian uh, captivity and destruction of Israel in 722. But he goes also one step further and talks about the destruction and exile of Judah later on in 536. What are these representative of? Well, not just representative of historical events, but what are these representative of? Representative of slavery, the representative of God leading his people through the dark times, the representative of people either choosing God or not, the representative of exile, which is representative itself of our, meaning humanity's, exile from God in sin and death in this world, exile from the garden. Everything goes back to the garden. Genesis 1, 2, and 3, everything goes back there eventually. Everything comes from there. The exile of God's people that God constantly talks about, he constantly talks about in terms of the historical exiles, which are then examples of our ultimate exile from God, for which God has come to bring us back and redeem us. And he couches it in this language of Rachel. Rachel weeping over her children. What's that mean? Rachel was the matriarch of Israel. We talked about two other uh, women this morning who were of that kind, but Rachel was someone different. Rachel birthed many of the tribes of Israel, quite literally, being the wife of, ja uh, wife of Jacob. Whenever Rachel is mentioned as a mother who is weeping over her children, she refuse to be comforted because they are no more. It's not just indicative of one mother weeping over her children, but this is a picture, this is a word picture of he who sustains and has created Israel weeping over his people. Rachel is, in essence, an illusion of God's reaction to what the people have done. Uh, they fought him, rejected him, had gone to exile, but like a weeping mother who would hope and pray for the best for her children, God goes with his people and redeems them. There's a lot going on here. What Matthew is connecting with the birth of Christ and the death of innocence at the hands of a powerful tyrant 
is actually reinforcing the very reason that Christ himself was born. Reinforcing the very fact that Christ was born. into a world where innocent people suffer. Christ was born into a world to which power corrupts. Christ was born into a world exacerbated and exemplified as in power would sacrifice the innocent. But also more than that, Matthew is pointing out Christ's life itself. How does Matthew start? Christ is born... The innocents perish. Luke actually makes an allusion to this. He doesn't reference the massacre of the innocents, but he does the very same thing when Simeon blesses him. Then Simeon blessed him and said to his mother Mary, Listen carefully, this child is destined to be the cause of the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be rejected. Indeed, as a result of him, the hearts of many, the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul as well. This is Simeon, in essence, prophesying Christ's very life. What is Matthew doing here? Same as Luke. He's, in essence, creating cross-shaped bookends. By having the triumphalness of Jesus' birth contrasted right away with the innocent dying because of the guilt of one man or the fear of one man, So will Christ's life be that the innocent, the innocent, dies on behalf of the guilty. Luke foreshadows it. Matthew foreshadows it. Why does it matter in terms of Moses and exile and exodus? Well, in fact, that's the whole point. Let's get into some application. One of the first things that this passage teaches us, as I already mentioned a moment ago, that Jesus was born into a world of darkness, sorrow, pain, and suffering. This we know. And Matthew, I think, very intentionally takes the moment of talking about a historical event which exemplifies the world to which Jesus Christ was born, the world in which this baby must now redeem, a world which is corrupted by power and thought and darkness, a world which is characterized by suffering and pain, world in which sometimes nothing makes sense that the innocent babies die but the corrupt men live you look at this world that christ is born into and we still do it we go god what are you doing what is going on the first thing matthew's doing is putting this point very plain but the second thing he's doing is he's showing us that jesus was born to begin the new Exodus to the new creation. What do I mean by this? By invoking the image of Moses, by invoking the image of exile, he also invokes the image of redemption. You see, Jesus or God is never talking about exile without mentioning the fact that he redeemed his people and brought them out of slavery. He almost never talks about it. He never he, God never reminds his people by simply saying, Hey, remember you were you were messed up in Israel or Egypt. He always says, I brought you out, therefore, that's the kind of God I am. By invoking this imagery, Matthew is saying from the very beginning, he just got done with the genealogy, talking about what kind of king Jesus is going to be, right? 
He's now saying the purpose and the mission of that king, that Jesus was born like Moses, to be the leader out of bondage, of exile, of slavery, of sin and darkness and death itself into new creation, signified by a new birth of this baby. Jesus himself is, unlike Moses and Jeremiah and everything, Jesus himself is indeed the new creation that we are brought into as the Messiah. But also, the thing is, I think Matthew is trying to tell us that as rain over an area covers and touches everything under it, Jesus is teaching us, Matthew is teaching us by this incident that Jesus was born to usher in the kingdom of God in and through all the events of the world, including even those which are just, unrighteous, and unfair. The fact that Rachel, as a matriarch of Israel, as a picture of God, is weeping over what happens is very indicative of God's character. Indeed, Jesus and God never just say, you know, buck up about what happens. But they empathize. And they come alongside his people. The picture we have here is in the midst and through and within darkness and suffering. In the midst people's sorrow in the midst of cries of mothers for their babies as God has cried over his creation in this midst new creation has come in the midst of this mess the new exodus from slavery has started and in the midst of even this horribleness and pain. The kingdom is here. In fact, you could sum up this section by saying, if the kingdom of God can not only begin, but yet prosper from this kind of beginning in the midst and beginning of this horribleness, What does it teach us about what the kingdom should do in the midst of our own pain and darkness? Indeed, in the passive life, there are many things in which we must choose to look at, not from a blind corner aspect and go like, I don't know what's happening, I'm done! But just as this is in this instance, we must keep in mind God's big picture. He never says that things will be good in our life. He never says things will be redeemed in our life. He never says anything will go right for us. But he says he will use all things, the totality of all things, to work for good, the ultimate good, his good for the world, for those according to his purpose and who are called. It's interesting because Jeremiah even uses some of that language. He says, set up road signs, aid posts, 
Take note of the highway, the road that you take. Return, virgin Israel. Return to your towns. How long will you wander, unfaithful daughter Israel? The Lord will create a new thing on earth. The woman will return to the man, meaning the bride of God, Israel, and his creation will return to him. This story, the massacre of the innocents, a story of power, it's indicative of the world we live in. But just as indicative of the world that we live in is the world we live for, with Jesus Christ, God incarnate, being the ultimate signpost, the ultimate highway, leading us through whatever happens in life, the darkness, the pain, the sorrow, that yes, we must deal with and God empathizes with, but in the midst of, is God bringing about his new creation, God bringing us through away from sin and slavery and death and pain. In the midst of it, God is leading us through it to leave it. The dark side of Christmas teaches us this. It teaches us that God, through Christ, can overcome even the worst of this world to redeem it what it could always be. I challenge you this week in light of this text to become your own signpost in the midst of the world, in the midst of power, in the midst of things that happen. Be your own signpost for the coming of the kingdom. Become a signpost and a road sign pointing people away from the darkness and the pain that they are in towards new creation. Be a signpost that doesn't have to necessarily call out the powers that be, but one that speaks against them in the very nature of our lives. But do it in a way like Christ. My last point real quickly, is that he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets may be fulfilled that he would be called a Nazarene. Nazareth was the last place <laughs> that anyone of power would have ever expected anyone to come. Nazareth was kind of like podunk town, if you want to use that term. The boonies, whatever. The lesson from this passage is while life may be a blind corner that we never know what's coming and we have to deal with, the path of Christ will overcome. The path of Christ can persevere. The path out of our slavery to darkness and sin and death has been instituted by Jesus Christ, who is indeed the new creation. Let us, let our church, let our witness, let our lives be the very signposts that Jesus' birth was to the women and families who mourned. But yet, through Christ, was able to overcome, to bring about the greatest thing this world has ever seen. Let us be 